Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. We have a lot going on on today's show. Here in just a little bit, we're going to check in with Paul Blyberg. He's the Senior Vice President of Government Relations with the National Milk Producers Federation about what to expect in dairy policy here, given the fact that 2022 is an election year. In segment three, we're going to be joined by Professor Gary Winslet. Back in March, or excuse me, earlier this month, he published a book entitled Competitiveness and Death, a look at the regulatory barriers that impact trade in cars, pharmaceuticals, and beef. He's going to join us to give us an update on what those barriers are doing to beef trade around the world. And in segment four, Matt Bennett of agmarket.net has their updated acreage outlook, looking ahead to next week's prospective plantings report from the USDA. But before we get into all of that, fertilizer has continued to be a very, very volatile market. Helps spread a little light on that. Josh Linville, the Stonex Director of Fertilizer, is joining us now. And Josh, urea pricing, what's it been doing here these past two or three weeks as this war in Ukraine has dragged on? Well, you don't have to look very far. And uh, the answer is out there just about every corner that you look on the Internet. It's up, up, up. It is. And where does it go from here? Well, there is. that's a magic question. And unfortunately... That answer lies with a lot of the things that we don't yet know. Um, we've got to find out, you know, is the Chinese government going to start allowing exports again, as they're talking about in June? Are they going to extend that? Does this Russia-Ukraine situation continue to drag on for months on end? Uh, the even scarier part of it is, what if Russia starts shutting off natural gas flows to Europe, which is going to devastate European production? I mean, I, as much as I hate to say it, there is still upside in the numbers of where we're at today. Well, it, it certainly makes sense, given the uncertainty that's out there. Josh, yesterday, or perhaps the day before, Putin said that selling natural gas to unfriendly countries is going to require payment in rubles. And of course, he's looking at Western Europe for that. Does that type of change impact the way fertilizer producers in Europe are going to be doing business? Or will they just convert euros to rubles and still buy the gas? I, it's a great question. I'm not real sure. I mean, you see a lot of the risk that's been going on with the uh, ruble currency and everything like that. And of course, that's going to see a lot of pushback from the Western world because it's so used to doing business in the uh, U.S. dollar. But then again, we look at how much of a energy exporter that Russia is, and that includes fertilizer, of course. And if they're able to hold out long enough, that could force their hand to sit there and say, listen, we really need to have this stuff. We need the natural gas. We need the fertilizer. We may need to capitulate and start doing business that way until we find a new normal out there. And, of course, now all of a sudden we've got to start. It's already a complicated enough marketplace. Now we've got to throw currency risk in the middle of it. Well, currency risk and labor struggles. We heard earlier this week that strike up in Canada on the Canadian Pacific Railway. Josh, on the ground, that was a two-day strike. Did it impact much delivery of fertilizers into the heartland? No, I don't think it did. Uh, luckily, if you look at the radar, it's been fairly wet, fairly cool. Uh, we've not really seen widespread application of fertilizer yet. So we could give up the two days. I don't think it's going to have a major impact. Had that thing continued to drag on for a few weeks, we were going to start seeing major, major impacts. But that might be the first win we've had of 2022. There we go. Take take victories where you can, I suppose, in a year as crazy as this one. You mentioned Chinese exports. There was, I think, some expectation that once the Olympics was over, China was going to turn back on their, their fertilizer production facilities and we would see them come back to the market. What's happening on the ground over there? Are they starting to kick production back up? Well, and that's the thing. Uh, when it comes to information coming from China, it's really, really hard to come by. Uh, that information is protected. Uh, they don't release that. Everything that it comes out of China goes through the government filter. There was a lot of talk that, yeah, China is coming back to the export market after the Olympics. There was a lot more talk that, oh, when the world market hits 400, 500, 600, 700, they're coming back. And it's one of those things, if you say it enough times, eventually it'll be true and you pat yourself on the back with it. The problem is when these ex export uh, restrictions were put into place last fall, it was due to tight world supplies and uh, high world pricing. They were protecting the Chinese farmer. 
the problem that we've had with the idea that they're going to come back to the marketplace early, which they still absolutely could, it's China. Never discount and never sit there and say they can't do something because they absolutely will do it. But when you look at those two reasons as far as why they enacted the ban, those two reasons are actually in worse shape today than what they were back then. So even if they do re- start to come back to the export market, I fully expect that it is going to be under the very, very watchful eye of the Chinese government. They are going to sit there and say, you may export 200000 you may export 100000 They are going to dictate the terms of what happens. So if they do come back, expect a far more managed export program than we've seen out of China in the past, it sounds like. That's my expectation. All right, Josh, you know, we have been talking for the past six months about fertilizer and the volatility in that market. It's got guys thinking a little bit more long term here as we come into planting season 2022. I know producers are looking out to 2023. Josh, is it too early to start getting concerned about next year or is now the time to start putting some plans in place? You know, I a very long answer short, I am still leaning towards no. And the reason is, when you look at where fertilizer prices are today, urea, record highs, UAN, record highs, anhydrous, record highs, potash, the only one that isn't is phosphate. And it's within $100 of breaking that 2008 all-time high. So we're talking about securing a product eight months before the fall season gets here, 12 months before next spring, you know, spring of 23 gets here at record high prices. I mean, we've seen how quickly things can change in one, two, three months. Imagine what can change in eight months, 12 months. Could it be worse than where we're at today? Absolutely, but I'm just not a fan of securing record high prices this far in advance. Let them run, let's see where they go. After we get through spring, Josh, as you're thinking, getting fertilizer on the ground, you mentioned we've got a lot of wetness over the Corn Belt. Do you have a sense yet as to how, uh, how it's gonna go on the ground this year here domestically? I'm not expecting any major shifts. Uh, there's a lot of talk like, oh, are corn acres gonna be down big? Are they gonna be up big? You know, is wheat gonna be any different? Soybeans, right now, we're kind of continuing with what we have been expecting. You know, 91 million acres of corn, 90 million acres of beans, and so on and so forth. And with that comes normal expectations for fertilizer. Now, Mother Nature, you know, we're sitting here very, very late March. And if this continues, we could start having a conversation very shortly where we're saying, hey, spring in hydrous didn't happen. And now all of a sudden we're talking major shifts towards urea UAN, demand shifts that we can ill afford given the tight supplies. There's a lot more questions that need to be answered, but in the next two to three weeks, those answers are going to come fast and furious, and we're going to have a lot better idea of not only what the rest of the spring looks like, but what we can start to expect going into the summertime. Looking out over the next two, three weeks, well, six weeks truly to get through fertilizer season. Josh, how does transportation look? Supply lines look like we're going to be able to get product where it needs to go? I, that's the one thing that worries me. I get a lot of people that ask the question, do we have enough supply in the U.S. slash North American marketplace to get through spring? And I think that the short answer is yes, we do. We're ahead on imports for urea. Producers have been producing more UAN to make up for the lack of imports, so on and so forth. But my biggest fear is moving it from point A to point B in a timely manner. Uh, I've been in this industry for 20 years. I've never been as nervous about logistics as what I am today. You know, we're seeing some barge traffic being hindered. Uh, Lower Mississippi has been dealing with some near flood stage uh, water levels. Rail, you know, service is kind of untimely from time to time. And trucks, good luck finding a trucker out there. These guys have gone to other industries that don't take them away from their family every single night. It's very difficult to move product today. Get in contact with your retailer. Make sure you've got a plan in place. That's Josh Linville, the Director of Fertilizer for Stonex. Josh, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you, sir. And folks, stick around. Paul Bleiberg from NMPF when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. 
Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for joining us today, ladies and gentlemen, here on AOA. I'm sure a lot of us get up, start the day with coffee or perhaps a bowl of cereal. And I know I like to put milk in both of those things. Dairy policy is happening in Washington, D.C. all the time. And these past few weeks, we've actually seen some progress develop. Joining me today is Paul Bleiberg. He's the senior vice president of government relations at the National Milk Producers Federation. And Paul, last week, we saw that Ocean Shipping Reform Act pass. NMPF was a voice in support of that. Tell us, what did the dairy industry win with the passage of that legislation? Well, thanks, Mike, for having me on. We were very excited that the uh, legislation moved forward in the Senate Commerce Committee following action in the House. And this legislation in broad terms will really help in, in the long term with some of the supply chain challenges that we've been facing over the last year, especially as it relates to issues at the ports, as we've had backups there, backlogs that have really had an impact on exports. And uh, we're hopeful now that that legislation can get enacted into law, maybe as part of a larger package. Obviously, the House passed their version of the bill in December, then they passed it again as part of a larger bill, and now the Senate Commerce Committee has moved its bill. So we'll, we'll get the two chambers into a negotiation where we can get the best outcome of that process and hopefully get something signed into law as soon as possible. Specifically, with that Ocean Shipping Reform Act, really, we were pushing for additional funding there at the ports. Was that the goal of dairy? We've got to get this refrigerated product moved off our shores. Yeah, I mean, the, the bill uh, the bill provides some added authorities to the Federal Maritime Commission to deal with challenges, especially when shippers are having issues with the ocean carriers. And that's really what the bill is intended to do. There is some additional authorization of funding for the FMC as well, like you point out, uh, but it's also a question of making sure that the enforcement authorities are, are strong and the commission has the tools that it needs. 
All right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. We will continue to watch that move its way through Congress, Paul. We did see some success. We had the omnibus spending bill, one and a half trillion dollars. We've now funded the government through the end of the fiscal year. Of course, when we get these big package deals, there are oftentimes uh, nuggets of value to different industries. In that omnibus bill, Paul, was there anything that Derry had been pushing for? And did you get what you were hoping for as that bill made its way across the finish line? Yeah, that's a great question. So there were a couple of items I'll highlight. Uh, one of the things we've been working on for a while in our kind of climate and sustainability toolbox overall is trying to expedite approval of animal feed additives that can play a role in reducing enteric emissions from livestock. And uh, the challenge we have is that the Food and Drug Administration, which oversees the approval of these additives, treats them as drugs rather than food items, even though they really run through the digestive tract of the animal. And so in this legislation, in the omnibus bill that just passed, we were able to get language included that would direct the FDA to look at how they might be able to classify these better as foods, and we were able to get a million dollars in new funding for this authority as well. So obviously a million dollars is just a starting point, and we're going to be looking to build on that as Congress starts the work on the fiscal year 2023 bill, which will begin before you know it, hard to believe. Uh, since they just got this one done. But this was a good grounding of our efforts and a good start, and it'll help us build not just with Congress, but also with FDA. In addition to that item, the bill provided funding for a number of programs that have been in existence for a few years now. The 2018 Farm Bill reauthorized the Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network to provide support for stress in rural America, as well as the Dairy Business Innovation Initiatives Program to fund different innovation projects around the country. Both of those pro uh, programs were well-funded in, uh, in the omnibus as well. Well, that is good news. Paul, I want to circle back to the the changing way that FDA could be looking at dairy feed additives. That that sounds like a huge shift in the way that this has been moving forward. We've seen lots of these additives coming on the market recently. Looking out longer term, how long does it take to turn a ship like the FDA from regulating these things as drugs to food? Is this a multi-year process that is just beginning right now? Yeah, yeah, it can be a long process to make these kinds of changes, especially since it's the current policy is based on what's in the agency's policies and procedures manual they've had on the books for a while. And this was the first step, right? This was a first signal from Congress that Congress would like the agency to take a look at this and see how they could do it differently. We'll be following up on this, but we expect it to, to be a continued ongoing effort not just with members of Congress, but with us and our friends in the stakeholder community that are working on this to apply that pressure and keep those conversations going. But certainly, whenever you're trying to get an agency to do anything new or different from what they've been doing before, it's very common that they're going to say, well, we're happy to look at it, but we don't have the resources to do it. We don't have the funding. So that's why we were so glad to get initially a million dollars here in this bill to start that process. And a million dollars in congressional speak isn't necessarily a lot of money, but it's something that they don't have right now that we can start down the path with. It gets the ball rolling. Paul, another topic that has been a hot button issue for several years is, of course, dairy trade between the United States and Canada. That was one of the core issues when uh, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA, was renegotiated. Give us an update. How do we sit right now with the dairy trade between the U.S. and Canada? And what are the pitfalls that you're watching there in D.C.? Sure. Well, we were very glad that the dispute settlement panel uh, ruled in our favor earlier this year. Obviously, that was a, that was a very positive step. And uh, unfortunately, what Canada has initially proposed as a solution to that, we just felt is, is really not a, not a real fix to the problem. It's not going to change the underlying uh, dynamic that we were concerned about. And it really violates the, the letter and the spirit of the USMCA as agreed to, as negotiated and enacted by Congress. So we're going to continue to advocate for a real solution to this challenge, while also keeping an eye out for you know, down the line, a number of other issues with implementation of USMCA have to be addressed as well, dealing with the you know, export surcharge issues on the Canada side, but also with other areas as well. So uh, you know, this has been a long running issue, as you point out, uh, but our view you know, right off the bat is that the Canadian proposal to address the issue that you know, was made public a number of weeks ago uh, just does not address the issue meaningfully, and so more work is going to be needed. But the good news is it sounds like that the, the framework is in place to be able to address the concerns under USMCA. It's not like we need to pull everything back and, and start over, is it, Paul? We're happy with USMCA. It's just a matter of fine-tuning. Well, it's a matter of getting it implemented correctly, right? You know, it's making sure that the language of USMCA is actually implemented. The enforcement procedures under the agreement have been helpful, right? The dispute settlement panel 
that dispute settlement panel was key to getting the ruling in our favor here. You know, the last administration had initiated proceedings, the current administration undertook the panel, and it's really continued that. So both of the two administrations have done work on this. Uh, it's a matter of making sure it all comes to fruition. All right. Well, you had mentioned that conversations in D.C. sometimes take a while to get underway. And the Farm Bill of 2023 is a little ways ahead of us. But I imagine, Paul, you're already starting those discussions as you think about the the dairy producers perspective heading into this Farm Bill. What are some things you'd like to see? Well, those conversations really are just starting now. And it's important to underscore with the Farm Bill that, uh, you know, the first thing that the Agriculture Committees do is uh, kind of do an audit of current programs, the 2018 Farm Bill. How is everything working? Are things working as intended? Do things need to be done differently? Are more resources needed? The House Agriculture Committee has already started that process with a number of full committee and subcommittee hearings, and I think they're going to ramp that up as the year goes on. The Senate Agriculture Committee traditionally starts their process with two field hearings, one in the home state of the chair and one in the home state of ranking members. So that means we're going to be in Michigan and Arkansas this year for two field hearings of the Senate Ag Committee over the next several months. And you know the key to remember here is the midterm election is sitting in between where we are right now and September 30th of next year when the Farm Bill expires. Now, that's going to be an important factor because the, the chairs may change, especially discussions in the House, the high probability that the House may change. And that doesn't impact every aspect of the Farm Bill because at the end of the day, it's still a bipartisan bill, but it can impact some aspects of the process and what happens. And so the, the real bill writing won't begin in earnest until that point, until we you know get into next year and we get into the new Congress. But obviously, a lot of discussion is going on right now. You know, in the dairy space, we're obviously just beginning a lot of that as well. But there's going to be lots of interest in the sustainability front. The COVID-19 pandemic, of course, put a spotlight on different issues that are challenges for the dairy sector, both around pricing and, and other areas. So we'll be looking at what needs, you know, what needs to be done legislatively versus what are things that USDA can do administratively is always a question. So whether it's tinkering with the safety net or improvements on the pricing side, we'll be looking at all those things as we go forward. All of those discussions getting started, Paul, prior to the November election, are there any pieces of legislation that you at NMPF are really keeping an eye on? Well, sure. So obviously the Ocean Shipping Reform Act that we already talked about, I'd like to see that get done, and I think we think that will get done in some form here. Uh, immigration continues to be a major priority. You know, Senator Mike Crapo, Republican from Idaho, and Senator Michael Bennett, Democratic Senator from Colorado, are, are talking with one another about trying to take the House passed Farm Workforce Modernization Act from last year, uh, make some, hopefully make some improvements to it and see if there's a pathway to getting that through the Senate. Now, immigration is a tough issue to act on in any year, but especially in an election year, but we're going to continue to try to keep momentum going there. Um, and then before you know it, we'll be getting into the fiscal year 23 appropriations process that I talked about. Farm bill, of course, we already talked about. So it'll be a mix of different items. Before you know it, if you get to the summer, the election season will really dominate everything else. Yeah, sure will. That is just around the corner, folks. That's Paul Bleiberg, Senior Vice President of Government Relations with the National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. And when we return, Professor Gary Winslet talks about competitiveness and death, trade barriers in the world of beef. Stick around for AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. When it comes to your 2022 seed decisions, don't step over the line. Buy new, professionally produced seed from authorized seed companies and dealers. The Seed Innovation and Protection Alliance membership of 100 companies invest 15% of their sales into product research and development that can take 7 to 16 years, with total costs ranging from $1 million to $140 million for new genetics and or traits. SEPA thanks farmers for buying new seed that not only maximizes yield potential, but also funds the next great seed innovations for U.S. farmers. To anonymously report a seed infringement, call 1-844-SEED-TIP. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, grain and livestock markets mostly lower with the exception of cattle futures here as we work through our Thursday morning. USDA's daily flash export sales report included another 11.7 million bushels of current year soybeans sold to unknown destinations this morning. The trade's going to assume that is more business with China. U.S. soybeans, they remain quite competitive with Brazilian supplies, but primarily in the June and beyond window. Brazil will continue to ship soybeans ahead of the U.S. harvest six months from now, but we expect U.S. shipments to increasingly make up a larger share of shipments to China and elsewhere as we move through the summer, boosting our exports while shrinking our ending stocks projections, while also increasing the need to expand acreage of the 2022 crop. Weekly export sales and shipments released this morning, 38.8 million bushels of corn, 14.6 million bushels of beans, and 19.2 million bushels of wheat were sold during the week ended March 17th. Meantime, stock futures posted modest gains overnight as NATO leaders hold an emergency meeting on the one-month anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That meeting going on right now in Brussels. Yet that modest strength comes at the expense of the commodity sector, which saw light selling again overnight and continuing here this morning. The VIX trading just above 23 this morning as well. Few numbers right now on the board. May corn down eleven and a quarter, seven forty-six and a half. May beans down five and a quarter, seventeen thirteen and a half. May bean meal up ten cents a ton, four eighty-five twenty. May bean oil down sixty-five points, seventy-five thirty-two. May Chicago wheat down twenty-two and three quarters, ten eighty-three. May Kansas City wheat down sixteen and a half, ten ninety-five. May spring wheat down eleven and a quarter, ten seventy-eight. April live cattle up twenty one thirty nine sixty two. March feeder cattle up sixty five one fifty six seventy five. April hogs down twelve one hundred two forty two. Crude oil down a dollar ninety seven a barrel one twelve ninety six. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. You know, when we talk about things that impact the world of agriculture, particularly those things coming out of Washington, D.C., we tend to think about legislation, stuff that gets voted on by our Congress folks and then passed through and then signed by the president. But there are a lot of other factors and a lot of other issues that come out of D.C. that come from the regulatory side, the enforcement arm of the executive branch. And uh, some of those aren't always top of mind for us. Well, there's one man. He's a researcher out there. He's an assistant professor of political science at Middlebury College in Vermont. He's a fellow with the R Street Institute and is the author of the recently released Competitiveness and Death, Trade and Politics in Cars, Beef and Drugs. Please help me welcome Dr. Gary Winslet to the show. Gary, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to talk to you. Let's talk about your book first, Competitiveness and Death, Trade and Politics in Cars, Beef and Drugs. Of all the things that are traded globally, why did you pick those three? And specifically, why did you focus on beef in your, in your book? Yeah, so I wanted to have something to say that was not just idiosyncratic to one particular industry. So I wanted something from agriculture, something from manufacturing, and something from high tech. Um, and each of these three is a really quintessential industry in that sector. So, you know, if you think about agriculture, like beef is one of, you know, the quintessential industries there. Um, you know, it's super commercially relevant, as I'm sure all of your listeners know. Um, and a lot of the usual explanations for this particular case that I look at between the United States and Japan 
Um, none of those usual explanations work properly, and it you know hadn't this case hadn't really been analyzed by other political economy scholars before, and so it was a really interesting um, case study to to look at uh, around regulation in beef. So let's talk specifically about the beef sector. Obviously, you focused on a lot of other issues, but for our audience, let's talk beef. What regulations in particular were you looking at in the beef space? So I was looking at uh, the regulations around mad cow disease. It's referred to as as mad cow, but it's officially known as BSE or bovine spongiform encephalopathy. So, uh, you know, if some of your listeners think back to like the late 1990s, there was this big mad cow scare in, in Europe, you know, and it, you know, if you got mad cow disease, it could be fatal. Um, and so there's a lot of um, new regulations that needed to come out of the World Animal Health Organization. Um, and then different countries would have a variety of different regulations on trying to fight this. Some of those made scientific sense, but some of those were really not motivated by a scientific understanding. Um, and so some of those, those regulations would really impact the trade in beef um, and so I was looking at the negotiations between the United States and Japan around these mad cow regulations um, from 2003 to 2013. And what did you learn? What did these regulations do to the beef trade? What can we take away from that 10-year time span of, of yeah, the, the BSE scare in global beef trade? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that, you know, would really be important to learn is, that other countries' regulatory processes do not work the same way as the United States. Um, and so we just have to be thoughtful and, and sort of sensitive about how we go about doing our negotiations. Uh, one of the things we learned over that period was, you know, just having the U.S. trade representative yell at their counterpart in another country. It's not as effective um, as if you sort of try to find these sort of clever solutions. So like one of the things that really helped open up the beef trade with Japan was just accepting a sort of middle ground position around age and mad cow regulations, right? Because it's a, it's a neurological disease in cows and it's, it's very much correlated with age. It's, it's a lot more prevalent among older cows. And so just having beef come from younger cows, which U.S. producers are actually well set up to do, uh, ended up being a really uh, clever um, you know, negotiating outcome that, that we got. And that really helped reopen the, the beef trade with Japan, um, which is still to this day the United States' biggest beef export market. Um, the China is quickly rising. Um, that's one of the, the things that's been really nice about the relaxation of the trade war with China is that they've been buying a lot more U.S. beef. Um, so in August of 2020, just for that month, um, China bought 10 million pounds of U.S. beef. But if you look at August of 2021, just one year later, they bought 59 million pounds, so more than quintupled over a year. Um, and so that's, you know, what the stakes are, right? Like when, when we let these regulations get in the way of U.S. producers, they lose a lot of money. Um, and, you know, we, we don't want that, obviously. Um, and so finding smart negotiation outcomes is really helpful to U.S. producers. Gary, was there is there any lessons you can take from that 10-year window you studied, looking at specifically that BSE issue into Japan, and, and morals we can apply more broadly to consumer protection regulations, especially as they apply in the meat space here in this country? Um, well, um, <laughs> one of the things that would be nice to do in the United States is just recognize that everything has a trade-off, right? And so right now, the Biden administration is really thinking about trying to promote a lot more competition rules and regulations in the meat industry space. But the the problem is that really works against scale and scale is how you make meat affordable, right? So we've got a really high inflation right now, you know, 7.9%. When ordinary people go to the grocery store and things are just really expensive, that super hurts. Um, And so there's just, there's no free lunch. You can't just like pass a bunch of new regulations and not think that that's going to have a cost on the back end. Um, to consumers. And so that's just, that's the big lesson I would draw is that there's always a trade-off. As you're thinking about those costs, Gary, one of the the phrases that came up a few times in your book is the California effect. Can you tell us, uh, break that down for us, give us the definition. What is the California effect when you're using that phrase? Yeah, so it's it's from an eponymous example. Um, So California raised its auto emission standards for air quality. 
And German automakers sell a lot of cars in California, and so they didn't want to have two production lines. And so they just started making all of their cars meet the, this California standard since it was the highest standard. But they didn't really want to get undercut by their competitors in Germany, and so they lobbied the German government to also raise its standards. And so what the California effect is, is it's a shorthand way that political economists talk about how international trade can actually lead to higher standards over time uh, rather than lower standards. Because there's sometimes this, this fear around trade that are, turns into a race to the bottom. Um, and political economists just don't think that's nearly that, – that, that sometimes happens, but it's not nearly as common as people think. And this California effect is one of the, the sort of ways it happens. It's, it's a way in which trade promotes higher standards rather than lower standards. Yeah, and it's interesting kind of looking at it from the opposite point of view. It's a way in which the early mover, in this case, California, and we see this, I, I suppose, a similar thing would be education standards coming out of Texas. These big movers are able to mm -hmm. change the entire playing field, even for perhaps those constituents who might not be looking for that change. Does that have some detrimental impacts overall in writing regulations? Uh, I mean, it, it certainly can. Um, I, I kind of like how you put it as like a first mover advantage. Um, you know, we, we sometimes in, in trade um, talk about like soft power and market power. So like the EU will do a lot of this. Um, and this can be, you know, un, unhelpful in certain ways uh, at times, right? So the EU wants to write a bunch of like food safety regulations that really don't have a scientific basis. Um, and that can create a lot of problems for U.S. producers who – you know, want to, you know, want to do things differently. So this is one of the big um, sticking points in the TTIP negotiations between the U.S. and the EU. Um, and so that's one of the costs that come out of that. Professor Will, your book is titled Competitiveness and Death. Why did you put those two things together? Where does the death come in when we're talking about international trade? Yeah, so I was looking at when do we see these regulatory trade barriers increase or decrease? And the, the big argument that I make in the book and the big finding that I have is that arguments around economic competitiveness are the central rhetorical framing that can get government officials to reduce these regulatory trade barriers. But the thing that most gets government officials to go in the opposite direction, that is raise these regulatory trade barriers, are arguments that those regulations are necessary for preventing needless death. Um, and so this is why you get these big regulatory trade barriers around consumer safety in automobiles, for example. Um, but it's also some of these arguments are what got Japanese officials to raise a lot of regulatory barriers around uh, beef imports from the United States. It's that fear of, of death, um, you know, that really sort of moves things in a much more regulatory sovereignty direction over a promoting commerce direction. As you think about how these conversations get to folks in power to, to have these regulatory burdens eased or changed, we use a lot of social media right now. Does do, do scare tactics work more in this age of social media? The, the fear of if we don't do something, somebody's going to die. Does it resonate yeah. more now that we've I, all got access to these tools 24-7? I, I think so. I mean, and I think COVID is actually a really good demonstration of this. So, you know, there have been 16 studies done on cloth masking, and 14 of them have a null finding. That is, they don't actually find that cloth masks do a ton. Um, and yet kids still have to mask in a lot of schools right now, even though CDC data suggests that hospitalization for children is less than two per 100,000. Um, I think when you get people afraid, particularly around, like, kids, um, you know, that fear is going to override you know, what scientific data suggests. So yeah, I, I do think that scare tactics and social media um, go hand in hand a lot. Gary, if folks want to dig into this a little deeper, where can they find your book, Competitiveness and Death? Uh, so they can get it on amazon.com uh, or they can get it at the University of Michigan Press. Um, they can also find me on Twitter at Gary Winslet. And then my email is gwinslet at middlebury.edu if anybody wants to reach out. There you go, folks. Get the details on how this stuff impacts our day-to-day -day live. Big thanks to Professor Gary Winslet for joining us today. And when we return, Matt Bennett of agmarket.net will give us a look at their acreage expectations for next week's Prospective Plantings Report. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at dtnpf.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit dtnpf.com today. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to, or hit rewind. Like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest. Uh-oh. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome. But pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So... When was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Next up, it's time to look ahead to acreage. Next week, we will get the official USDA Perspective Plantings Report, their annual survey of what producers are expected to plant. Now, granted, their numbers take into or go into effect as of the 1st of March. So there's always that 30-day window. But this is the time period when the private analysts are getting out there and we're trying to figure out, okay, what are these prices going to do for corn, soybean, and wheat acres in 2022? Well, agmarket.net released their estimates yesterday. Joining me now is Matt Bennett, one of the founders of agmarket.net. And Matt, give us the headlines. What are you guys expecting to see for corn and soy acres here this year? Yeah, here's the thing, Mike. We all know that uh, high prices typically get acreage, uh, you know, to get increased somewhat throughout the countryside. Uh, many times you'll see principal crop acres go up anytime that commodities go up in value. Now, we also know that input costs have been excessively high. So when you throw all these things together, a couple things jump out to me. First of all, uh, you look at wheat acres. USDA says we're up over 2 million on wheat acres. That's a printed number. That's uh, something we already kind of know. Could there be abandonment? Yes, but you know, if there's abandonment due to excessively dry conditions, I doubt we're gonna be putting much more money in you know, for a corn crop at this stage, but cotton acres are expected to be up as well. And we still think that 180 million acre mix that we had last year from corn and beans, we think that we'd still maintain that, even though we're uh, trying to pull some acres in other directions. And we just feel like the prices are high enough, we'll see that happen. But where we came up with our estimates, we feel like bean acres will be fairly close to corn based upon fertilizer costs. We think that in the fringe areas, in some areas where you didn't get anhydrous on last fall, uh, people aren't going to want to spend the kind of money uh, to put nitrogen on. So, uh, you know, it's obviously very expensive, even though we've got high commodity prices. But that puts us at 90.7 on corn and 89.8 on soybeans, which in essence is more than 180. It's still pretty robust acreage numbers. But uh, again, we're going to we're, we're going to put our money on uh, when it's all said and done. We'll be uh, at least uh, that close, you know, less than a million acres. Matt, as you're looking out for, for p potential troubles here in this crop year ahead, of course, we've got that drought in place in the Southern Plains. We've got still remaining drought across the Northern Plains and Western Plains. Where do you see we could see some acreage shifting here? You mentioned fringe acres. Are you really watching the Dakotas in the Southeast to see some of that uh, those acres switch? Yeah, those are a couple of the areas. I think that anywhere, Mike, that you have what I would call uh, not a super impressive APH, you know, and, and so, I mean, I don't, uh, I know there's a lot of good production areas in different parts of the country, but if I'm in a place where I don't feel confident, you know, that with a normal type year, I'm going to have at least 180, 200 bushel corn, it gets pretty tough to get out here and, and to drop, uh, um, you know, a thousand bucks an acre into a corn crop. Now, you know, whenever you look at just uh, what it costs to put the corn crop in, not even including land costs, uh, you know, most people are going to be pushing up on that $750, $800 an acre. And so uh, you throw a land cost in there and obviously it gets, uh, uh, things get pretty thin. So I guess my personal opinion is, is uh, some of the areas that you uh, talked about, first of all, and then second of all, it, even in the United States, uh, there are areas where we know that APH isn't going to run as rich. And uh, we also know that a lot of folks were kind of betting that the fertilizer market might back off somewhat. But as we all know, that hadn't necessarily been the case. So $1,500 anhydrous, I don't know, is something that a lot of folks where production isn't really strong are going to feel super excited about planting corn. Yeah, I think you are right about that. And I've heard similar comments from folks out there in the countryside. Max taking, or excuse me, Matt, taking a look at the trade today, we're seeing some just general weakness here through the grain trade. Anything driving that or are we just seeing some breath catching here in the uh, the Chicago markets? You've got to think that it's uh, catching your breath somewhat. I mean, good Lord, Mike, we have gained uh, so much value. Uh, people uh, long the market, corn, beans, you name it. Have made a ton of money lately and we do have a very big report coming up next week 
uh, you know, you see a little bit of a, a sign of the market maybe getting a little bit tired, and I feel like some of these bullish bets might get taken off the table. Uh, you know, we're not seeing a complete washout by any means, so uh, definitely we've had worse days in the market. But, uh, you know, you've seen this December corn market uh, have a couple of contract high closes in a row, and I guess that there's been a fair amount of corn you know, that the producer has uh, sold. I mean, talking to the people that we talk to, you know, you get up there in that 675, 680 range, Mike, and you're looking at 650 out of the field for a lot of people, which is uh, levels that most people have never been able to sell in advance of even getting the crop put in the ground. So uh, I, I've got to think there's a little bit of a selling going on, first of all, and second of all, uh, a little bit of profit taking going on, uh, uh, looking towards that report next week. And I'm glad you brought up that report next week. It's not just prospective plantings, quarterly grain stocks also coming out on the 31st. Matt, do you have any, are you expecting any surprises, I should ask, on that uh, quarterly grain stocks? Boy, that's a tough one, Mike. I tell you, there's been a lot of times where we felt like we had a really good handle on what quarterly stocks might be, and then we get a bit of a surprise. We should all keep one thing in mind. This March 31st report typically carries an incredible amount of volatility with it, uh, and I don't know which way we're going up or down. Uh, the thing is, is that uh, we feel like usage has been fairly strong. Uh, obviously, the ethanol industry has been churning right along. We've seen, uh, uh, you know, for instance, the SIF market's been on fire here lately. You've seen river bids awfully strong. And so I do think there's a fair amount of demand, you know, that we've been able to enjoy so far. Uh, but whether we're going to come in below estimates or not, that's, uh, that remains to be seen. I think that uh, the first number everyone's going to look at, of course, is going to be, hey, what's corn and bean acreage? And I think uh, uh, you got to remember, though, as, as I think you're alluding to, uh, this quarterly stock sometimes can really be something that surprised people. So uh, I wouldn't go in with any sort of... Um, you know, insinuation on what's going to happen or that, you know, I, I would definitely have my risk covered, so to speak. And if uh, I've got a, a ton of exposure going into this report, I'd at least uh, try to mitigate that somewhat because uh, we can certainly turn things around uh, with a report with that kind of magnitude. Yes, when things move, they can move quickly. Matt Bennett, one of the founders of agmarket.net. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We will talk a lot more ag policy and we'll talk crude oil pricing with Darren Domi of Powerline Futures. Tune in on Thursday for AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah, wallet. Check. And, oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch. Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall. But it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. Checktoprotect.org is the quick, easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free. Oh, oh, oh. laptop. Check. Before you go, take a minute. Visit Checktoprotect.org. Check to Protect is a program of the National Safety Council.